Well, welcome to Pillar Church, my friends. <clears throat> Glad you're here with us. It's good to see your faces, as always. Have they doing all right? You sure? Catch a little weird vibe from you guys right now, so <clears throat> we'll just see how that plays out as we go with uh, the message today. But uh, you can smell the chili. Is that what it is? I think maybe we're distracted. I, I'm telling you, there's some legit chili back there. There's like uh, more crockpots than you can shake a stick at. So excited for that. But let me just grab, grab your attention for the next couple of minutes here, so we can focus up on the word. Uh, I did want to kind of give you a, a little bit of an introduction though this morning because. I think it it um, helps kind of lay the groundwork, I guess, for where we're going. And that was just to tell you that, you know, before I became a Christian, I was convinced that three things would make me happy. Those three things were fame and fortune and success. If I had those three things, I'm confident that I would be happy. Anybody uh, relate with that? Anybody at all? Let's get you off. Raise your hand. <clears throat> I got one hand. Two hands. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thank you. They excited me. These things. They motivated me. In fact, a lot of the decisions that I made were because of those things that I was confident would bring me happiness. Um, had big plans coming out of high school. In fact, the idea of not having any one of those things—fame, fortune, success—the idea of not having those things would actually cause me to become a little bit depressed. It's like, I need these things in my life, or I won't. I can't be happy. Now, part of that probably had to do with my upbringing. My dad did well for himself and for his family. He came from nothing, small podunk town in Wyoming, and came up and, and, and really worked hard, and, and it paid off for him. And so I was blessed as a young person. We lived abroad. We traveled the world. I Wanted for nothing, literally nothing. And so that kind of set the tone for what I expected and what I thought would bring me happiness. And so I had, you know, gone through high school with these things, motivated me, graduated, moved on to college, and instantly realized that I was a terrible student. So I went and told my parents, I am not going to college anymore, but instead I'm joining the Marine Corps, which did not go over very well, especially with my dad whose mindset was, you have to go to college because if you don't go to college, you can't get a good job and you won't be successful because he knew how hard he had to work to get where he was. He didn't want that for me and my sister. You have to go to college. This is what you do. But me being 19 and knowing everything, um, off I went, joined the Marine Corps. And <clears throat> at the time, I didn't fully realize that the riches and fortune aspect of my desires was not going to be met in the paycheck of an E3. Um, but when I did realize that, I just doubled down the other two things. I can still be extremely successful and I can still be famous. Like there's lots of famous Marines, right? I, I can still be famous. And you laugh and I laugh too, but I'm not joking. Like this was my life. These are the things that, that shaped what I did, the decisions that I made, how I treated my wife, and my family, the hours I spent away from home, these were the primary things that I gave myself to because I was convinced that I had to have these things in order to be truly happy. <clears throat> well, guess what? The pursuit of these things did not bring happiness. In fact, they brought the opposite. 
all along the way, I didn't realize that I was doing damage to my marriage, damage to my family, even damage to my health. But in those years leading up to my salvation, you couldn't tell me otherwise that true happiness could be found in anything other than these things. That was my worldview. And you couldn't tell me any different. But here's the thing. I don't know if it's funny or sad or, or what, but even if I had landed on fame and fortune and success, you know what I wouldn't have? I wouldn't have happiness. Because along with my fat bank account and my worldwide recognition, I'd have a broken marriage, children I didn't appreciate or even know, and then I would have the realization that everything that I had ever done in my life led me to something that I was after and couldn't even get. So I, I don't know what's <laughs> worse, you know, the realization of that or just not having it at all. But again, that was my life until I was saved at the age of 26. That, that's what I was motivated by. That's what I did. Now, I don't know if you can relate to any of that. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But I'm here to tell you there are countless people all around you right now that are living this out. They're, they're doing it. This is what motivates them. This is what shapes what they're doing. They're looking for happiness in all the wrong places, right? We know people like this. But in reality, they're chasing something that doesn't even exist. Like true happiness, as they think, doesn't exist as the world promotes it. Lasting happiness is not a thing. It's not. It's fleeting. Because happiness is based on pleasant surroundings. And no matter how hard you try, you can't maintain pleasant surroundings 24-7, 365. It's just not going to happen. You're going to mess it up or somebody else is going to mess it up around you. It's impossible. What people are after, though, really, is joy. You see, joy is different from happiness because it's of the soul while happiness is of the moment. Joy is found in something far greater than this world has to offer. And so then, that joy is far greater than we could ever comprehend. And so if you haven't figured it out by now, we're talking about joy today. So grab your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, in, to John chapter 16. We're going to pick up where Mike left off last week. John chapter 16. When you're, say, when you're there, say, joy. joy! Wow, you're there. Okay, wait. Are you looking at it on the board? I got you. <clears throat> okay, I get it. That's okay. John 16, starting in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this, he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying... What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, A little while, and you will see me? Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish 
For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will not ask, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have not asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So Lord, we pause this morning. And we want to know, Lord, what, what, what this passage means for us today. Joy, uh, everlasting joy that can't be taken away sounds incredible, Lord. Uh, so I pray that you'd show us what you mean by this. God, what, what is your intention behind these words? How can it help us to continue to walk in faithfulness and obedience to your word? God, help it to shape us. Lead us this morning. Speak through me, I pray, truth with clarity and confidence and boldness, because it's not my words, but yours be proclaimed. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have questions, shoot them to that number right there. Mike and I will come up here and ask, answer those questions, rather, and, and we'll, get to, uh, we'll get to those toward the end of the service. But please, feel free to interact with us in that way. So as you look at this passage, it's basically broken down into two sections. We have this sort of back and forth between Jesus and the disciples in the opening verses, and then we have this sort of monologue by Jesus afterwards, kind of walking through what he's talking to them about. <clears throat> and he makes a statement about the fact that his disciples, in a little while, will no longer see him, and in a little while again they will see him. So you, like the disciples initially, may be a little bit confused by that statement. You're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Trying to figure this out. Well, they didn't understand it either. They're trying to talk it out among themselves, which, which I love, right? You see the disciples doing this often. They're talking amongst themselves while Jesus is standing, like, right there. It's not like they're going away and trying. Jesus is standing right there, so he's, like, listening to them. They're like, what do you think he means by that? What does he, what does he mean by a little while and you'll see me? In? And Jesus is, like, probably look, looking at them going, you know, hey, guys, I'm like, I'm right here. If you, you want to ask me, you know, just ask me. And I kind of chuckle at that, but then I realize and I remember myself how many times I've had direct access to the Father through Jesus, and yet here I am on the side talking to myself or among my friends going, what should we do about this? How can I make this situation better? What can I do to fix this, right? So I'm no different from them. So I can chuckle at them, but I'm chuckling at myself as well. Not even engaging the one who has all the answers. <laughs> but Jesus, in his kindness and his grace, his goodness... He, he, he helps them and brings to light what they're doing. He's like, guys, you, you want the answers? Like, I'm going to help you with the answers. And I love this about Jesus. He's sensitive to our needs, right? He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're, what we're hesitant to ask him about. And he meets us where we are, just like he did with the disciples, and he helps what we're lacking in a particular situation. He graciously reveals himself to us in spite of us at times. I love that about him. And so it's helpful, I think, to briefly discuss what it is that Jesus is actually talking about before we move into the next section. So let me reread verse 16 to you. You want to throw that next one up? A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So what is Jesus talking about here? What will cause the disciples to weep and mourn that the world will rejoice about? What are we talking about here? His death, 
Okay, and, and what? And his resurrection. Okay. So at the very least, we're talking about the death and resurrection. Now, there's a lot of debate about this. If you go read commentaries, you'll read all kinds of things about what this is supposed to mean. But I would say a majority of people land on the fact that we're talking about the death and resurrection. You will not see him because he's going to be dead. Then he's going to defeat death, rise again on the third day, and you will see him again. But I think in a deeper sense, I also believe he, he has in mind of how the disciples and followers of Jesus will see him through the Holy Spirit, right? Because once Jesus ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father, we read that the Spirit is coming. So pre-crucifixion and post-crucifixion, people will see the disciples, namely, they will see God differently and through a different lens. And so I think part of what he's talking about here is how they will see God. Okay, so that's kind of the opening couple of verses right there, setting the stage for what's coming next. Verses 20 through 22. Jesus is going to offer some clarity for the disciples and for us. <clears throat> In the form of instruction, he's going to give us an illustration, and then we've got some application. And I, and I just love the way that Jesus teaches. He's like, let me make it as simple as possible for you. And that's good, because I'm a simple person, and I need to broke it down for me. So he tells them what's going to happen. Doesn't he tell them? Does he sugarcoat it at all? Does he kind of placate for them? Or he just tells them straight up, you're going to suffer. You're going to have sorrow. There's going to be pain. It's not going to be fun. That's what he tells them is about to happen. And as that's happening, everybody around you is going to be rejoicing and celebrating. Sounds wonderful, right? No, it sounds terrible. <laughs> sounds awful. But he's telling them, be ready. Because this is what is coming next. But... That sorrow, that mourning, that weeping, I'm going to do something with that. What is he going to do? He's going to turn it into what? He's going to turn it into joy. What do you mean by that, Jesus? Isn't that like the first question you might ask? Say, okay, cool, but what do you mean by that? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. What's the illustration that he gives to help us understand this? Pregnancy, labor, childbirth, right? Okay, just make sure... We're all still here with me, okay? Childbirth, okay. Now, whether or not you've been in a labor and delivery room personally, we all know that childbirth is quite an experience, right? Amen. I got an amen from a dude. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Some say it's the most physical pain that a person can endure. Anybody testify to that? Yeah, Okay. So why? In the world, would anyone choose to do it again? Oh, because of the beautiful baby. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to those of you that are pregnant for the first time in the room. But, <laughs> however, it does begin to make sense more so when you consider Jesus' example. The very same thing that causes this tremendous pain and anxiety and suffering, whatever you labels you want to put on it, produces almost immediately a joy. The very same thing. You forget, I'm told, nearly instantly, everything of the preceding hours of all this, yeah, the pain that you just went through as you're holding this child in your arm. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, that's 
what Jesus says, so I'm, I'm hoping it's true, I'm believing it's true, but I'll take your word for it as well, because I've been in the room, but obviously I didn't have the same experience as you did. But it's not that there was some substitute or exchange that took place, right? The pain and the challenge of what you went through in that labor and delivery, it transformed into something else, right? Jesus didn't take away the pain and suffering, but the labor gets absorbed into the greater and larger blessing of the baby, right? We understand that. And so before we move any further and deeper into this, there's a lesson to be taken from this, and, and, I, and I think here's what it is. It's the idea of substitution versus transformation. Substitution versus transformation. And I think the best way for me to kind of get through this quickly is just I'm going to read a quote from my boy. He's not really my boy. Uh, <clears throat> Warren Wearsby is his name. He's a, he's a great scholar. He says like this. Every parent knows what it's like to have an unhappy child because a toy is broken or a playmate has gone home. The parent can do one of two things. Substitute something else for the broken toy or absent friend or transform the situation into a new experience for the unhappy child. If the mother always gets a new toy for the child each time a toy is broken, that child will grow up expecting every problem to be solved by substitution. If mother always phones another playmate and invites him or her over, the child will grow up expecting people to come to his rescue whenever there is a crisis. The result, either way, is a spoiled child who is not able to cope with reality. The way of substitution for solving problems is the way of immaturity. The way of transformation is the way of faith and maturity. We cannot mature emotionally or spiritually if somebody is always replacing our broken toys. Wow. Now you see why I chose to read that and try to explain it to you. That goes for us as followers of Jesus, right? And he knows, Jesus, better than anyone else, what we need in order to grow more like him and less like ourselves. You know, oftentimes we read the prayers and the, and the, the scriptures surrounding the Old Testament leaders, or the New Testament leaders, I should say, and those prayers are prayers of perseverance. Lord, bring me through this. Right? Not, Lord, get me out of here. Like, Lord, see me through this. Endurance. Perseverance. Let's look at James 1 real quick as an example. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's a probably familiar text for a lot of you. Look, there is purpose in the difficult situations that the Lord calls us to walk through. And more often than not, we're called to trust God, lean into the difficulty, and see how it will be transformed into some godly outcome. So oftentimes, we have our fleshly desire to just look for escape. Like, what's the easiest way out of this situation? I just need to get removed from it. But as followers of Jesus, it seems to be the more consistent pattern is to persevere through and watch what God does with it and turns it into something else. I know a lot of you can attest to walking through that in your own lives. 
in relationships, in circumstances, in jobs, and in all kinds of situations. So the application he gives in verse 22, let me look at verse 22 again. If you put that one up there, Stuart. So also you, now he's talking to the disciples, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In other words, just as the events that we just talked about, the events of childbirth are going to bring with it both pain and joy, so will my death and resurrection bring you both pain and joy. And no one, nobody, nothing can take away the joy that you will experience through me. That's the application that he's talking about here. So again, the opening was, I'm going to go away, you're not going to see me, and then you're going to see me. He's talking about his death and resurrection. Now he's saying that event is going to cause you a lot of pain and sorrow. Because they're, they're going to witness, they're going to watch this man who they walked with for three years, who they loved tremendously, who, who they sacrificed everything for, suffer, be ridiculed, beaten, mocked, and killed. They're going to be broken. I can't imagine the pain that they must have felt. But Jesus says, I'm going to transform that into something else. And on the third day, they're going to know it. And that joy is going to be something they can never, never lose. I said earlier, happiness is based on pleasant surroundings. Remember that? Joy, on the other hand, is a pleasant spiritual state. Not pleasant surroundings, a pleasant spiritual state. One pastor said it like this, he says, Joy cannot be found by direct pursuit. It is the byproduct of a right relationship with God. So there's this, uh, that proximity thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, John 15, and, and the abiding in Him. Like there's an aspect of, of being in community relationship with Him that we experience this kind of joy. So... This is what I meant earlier when I said that joy is found in something far greater than the world has to offer. And because of that, full and complete joy, we don't really get, have a full understanding of it. What it really is. It's far greater than we can imagine. So one of the main ways that we see the Lord turning sorrow into joy is through the significance of the cross. That's why he uses that example, I think. You see, Paul told the Philippian church that he would know Jesus in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, Paul would attain the resurrection from the dead. He's trying to identify with that. Then he told the Roman church that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with that of the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So anything that we're going through right now, as difficult as it may be, it pales in comparison to what is coming, the glory that we'll experience. The writer of the Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Then it says, consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners 
such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The Lord turns our present sorrow into joy as we gain a deeper understanding of the glory of the cross. Understanding the death and resurrection of Jesus and what he accomplished and the joy that he himself had as he walked in obedience to the Father is the beginning of understanding how sorrow can be turned into joy. I want to take it another step further. I want to read something. You don't have to, you can turn that if you want, but I'm going to go to Nehemiah. I'm way back here. <clears throat> Maybe. Jerry, can I get an amen? That's good. See, I had it marked. I found it. All right. Why are you like this, Dad? <laughs> Love it. Okay. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm just going to read a couple of verses for us. And all the people gathered as one. Let me back up. Let me stop. Israel has been in Babylonian captivity, right? How long? For how long? 70 years. Babylonian captivity, right? And then the king, the new king, let them come back, right? So they're getting ready to rebuild what? The walls, the temple, and themselves, their spiritual condition, right? So this is the beginning of them coming back to rebuild all these things after being exiled for 70 years. So this is what's happening. And all the people, all of Israel, gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded to Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathia, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkah, and Messiah on his right, and Fediah, Shale, Machal, Hashem, Habadashan, Zechariah, and Mishulam, on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So let me pause right there. So, the book of the law. Everything that they had ignored for generations and caused them to be in exile, 
He's about to read to them. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces at the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shebeth, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelta, Azariah, Josiah, Hanan, Deliah, the Levites. All these people helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, I always heard the joy of the Lord is our strength. Like, that's just something you talk about, right? Who's heard that before? Who's very familiar with the context that we just read that was in? A few of us, not nearly as many. So when we look to the larger context, what happened to the people of Israel when they understood what the, the, the word of God said to them? What was their response? They just broke down in tears because they finally understood what was happening. And they had to be calmed down multiple times like, stop, don't. Don't be sad. Don't mourn. This is a day of rejoicing. You understand who God is and who you are as his people. Rejoice. Celebrate. This is a holy day. That's what I think we're getting at here. When we begin to understand Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, what he defeated, what he rescued us from, and his defeat over death and his resurrection, we, we get a glimpse of how he is able to turn everything, sorrow, mourning, into joy. But it comes with the right understanding of what he's accomplished on our behalf. They truly grasped the character of God and who he is. They were moved by the truth about God, who he was. Don't be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength, as it is for you and I today. That doesn't change. If you're a follower of, of Christ, the joy of the Lord is your strength. <clears throat> we begin to deepen our understanding of who he is, in particular, like I said, his death and his resurrection. Man, we find the strength to persevere through things that we never thought we could get through. And we see the Lord turning our sorrow into joy. <clears throat> so if we have the joy of the Lord, does that, does that mean we're never going to be sorrow or quarrel or have grief ever again? Nope. There may be some of you that are going through grief right now. Maybe you recently lost a loved one. I, I don't know. This is not 
a recipe for removing grief and sorrow from our lives. It doesn't happen. <clears throat> but with all of the hardships and things that we go through in this broken world, we know a special kind of joy that cannot be removed from us because of our relationship with Jesus, because of who he is. And the world can't take it from us. You know why the world can't take it from us? Because the world didn't give it to us in the first place. However, if I go back to my opening illustration, and you find happiness or joy in things of this world, the world can take it away from you. So even if I, like I said, were to find all of these things that I was after, what happens when I lose my job or my bank account gets drained? My happiness goes right away with it. One more thing before we close. Complete joy. What's the word that the ESV uses? That your joy may be full, I think it is. That kind of joy is, is inextricably tied to prayer. It means it can't be separated from prayer. That's what these last two verses are about. Let me go back to those verses. Jerry, amen, I'm there. <clears throat> in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever I ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full or complete, I think the NIV says. So what Jesus is doing here, he's reorient, reorienting the people to the function of the Trinity. Do you see the Trinity in that? He tells them the way things are going to work from now on. He says, whatever you ask of who? The Father. In what? In my name. And we take into account the previous chapters through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to get it. Now, this is not a magic genie sort of rubbing the lamp kind of thing here. That's not what we're talking about. The pattern of prayer that Jesus offers here is that we pray to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Now, does that mean we can't pray to the other members of the Trinity? No. I mean, you can pray to Jesus and the Spirit directly. But there's a reason why Jesus tells us that here and in, in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. We have direct access to the Father. <laughs> That's not to be taken lightly. There's a reason why Jesus outlines this for us. So we go to the Father and we pray in the name of Jesus. But it's not a formula here. Don't think that we got to, you know, have this pattern you do this this and this and then you'll get this that's not what we're about here it's in our understanding and trusting in the truth that jesus taught us that we're trying to employ in our prayers it says ask ask and you'll receive and your joy will be full did you know that god cares about the well-being of his people yes. that he's he's in the business of making sure that we we have what we need and even what we desire he wants us to be people who are full of joy. It matters to him. And prayer is a key part of this. Complete joy comes by way of prayer. We receive joy as we pray. Now hear me on this, and this is not me, but I, 
I want to read it to you. Just a, just a quick sentence. God will put joy in our hearts that is directly related to the place of prayer in our lives. God will put joy in our hearts that is directly related to the place of prayer in our lives. You see, it's not a given. It's not a freebie. It takes a desire to know God more intimately, more deeply. It takes effort of abiding in Him through prayer. So I ask that you make a decision here today, this morning, to do just that. To desire a greater understanding, appreciation for who God is. Knowing that that comes through your interaction in your prayer time. Discover who He is in prayer and in the Word. And to be people who embrace transformation and not substitution. Right? Let's look for opportunities to persevere and push through. And not always look for the easy way out. For our good and for His glory. That we can experience the kind of joy that the world cannot take away. Do we want to be those kind of folks? We do, because there's something contagious about that. When the world looks at you, when you're going through difficulties and struggles and challenges, and they see this joy that resides on the inside of you that cannot be shaken, that stands out. It's a powerful testimony to the world around us, because they can't have that. They don't have the opportunity to live that out. They want it. Everybody wants it. And they're looking for it everywhere. Model it. Choose to be people who display the joy of God to the world. It is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It is something that the Spirit produces in us. We don't do it, but we have a role. And we abide in Him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Well, we just ask for God, your help. We want to know, we want to know you, Lord, more deeply and, and more intimately. In ways, God, that reveal who you are, what you've accomplished on the cross, that show us, God, that you can turn something tragic and, and, and overwhelmingly difficult that you can turn it into joy. Well, when we have the right heart, we have the right attitude, we have the right approach in our daily walk, there's nothing that this world can't bring to us that, Lord, we cannot walk through by your grace, by your mercy, and by your strength. So, Lord, I don't know exactly what people here are going through this morning, but but I'm certain that there are people that are struggling with certain aspects of life, wondering if it's ever going to get better, wondering if things are ever going to change. And I just pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that they would experience a kind of peace and joy that only comes through you. That they would trust, God, that you are in control.
that you are sovereign. You know what they're struggling with. You know what questions they're asking in their mind. If they would just open them heart, their hearts up to you. If they would just bring down the walls and fall to their knees and say, Lord, have your way in me. That you would produce a kind of joy that lasts through everything. God, it's not just in the difficulties or challenges of life that we experience your joy. There's much in this life that is happy and encouraging that we still experience your joy in. We're just, we need to be better at, at seeing it. Lord God, we, we need to be better at pursuing it. We'd be better at displaying it to the world around us. So help us in doing that, I pray. Lead us, I pray. Help us in Jesus' name.